seated. Last week we began working through uh, Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 and we were looking at a very uh, well-known passage of Philippians. Uh, last week we saw how Christ is God. He is equal with God. He was in the form of God and we saw how being in the form of God is equivalent to being the same as God. Uh, but we saw how he did not use his position, he did not use his deity to his own advantage. Uh, but instead, he humbly served and sacrificed himself for our sin. And the main idea that we looked at in the first half of this well-known passage was the humility of Christ. And we saw how that ultimately uh, ended in his death and in his sacrifice for our sins. And we saw how this passage kind of sinks down into the humiliation of Jesus. And now this week, we're going to see how it raises back up into the exaltation of Jesus. This passage does not end with his death. This poem or this ancient hymn goes on to demonstrate the exaltation of Jesus. In fact, the Bible says in uh, Matthew 23, verse number 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself, he will be exalted. And this entire passage shows us how Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of that reality there in Matthew. Last week, we looked at what Jesus did. He humbled himself by becoming selfless by being a servant and by making the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. This week, as we continue looking at verses 9, 10, and 11, we're going to look at what God the Father then did in response to what Jesus did. The beginning of verse 9 says, for this reason, God. And so last week, we saw what Jesus did. Now we're going to see what God did in response. God is the one who is instigating the action of our text. God is the one who is exalting Jesus because of his humble, obedient sacrifice. And ultimately, he exalts Jesus for the glory of the Father, which leads to our ultimate joy. So let's read all of chapter number two. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter number two. We will read the entire chapter for context, and then we will jump into verses 9, 10, and 11 and look at the exaltation of Jesus. Let's begin Philippians chapter two, verse number one. The Bible says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. 
Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure. Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by news of you. For I have no one else like-minded who, genuinely ca- who will genuinely care about your interest. All seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with the father. Verse 23. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. But I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and hold people like him in honor, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, the truths that we're going to see here in this passage are in a lot of ways very, very um, foundational and fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. And Lord, to some degree, we're going to take the sword of the word this morning and we're going to stab our flesh, and that's going to be hard. The truths that we're going to see will challenge our notion of autonomy, and they're going to challenge that um, inward desire and tendency we all have to set ourselves up as the ruler of our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you would anoint the preaching of your word, that it would be good news to those who are struggling, but, Lord, that it would be conviction to those who need to renew their minds and come into obedience to the word of God. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here or watching online that has not yet confessed that you are Lord and has not yet believed in their heart that you have been raised from the dead. I pray that today would be the day that they confess Jesus is Lord. That they would believe in their heart that you have raised him from the dead and you are seated on high and now you are Lord. That they would call on you and be saved. We ask this in your name. Amen. The first uh, thought we're going to see from these three verses this morning is the exaltation of his position. The exaltation of his position. Let's reread verse number 9. The Bible says, for this reason, God, what was that reason? What we saw last week, how he came as a servant, how he came in a selfless manner, how he ultimately sacrificed himself. For this reason, God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name. Now, highly exalted here means to exalt to the highest rank and power. It means to raise to supreme majesty. The exaltation that God is giving Jesus is in a class all by itself. And what's interesting about this word, highly exalted in the Greek, is that this is the only place in the New Testament that this word is used. 
It's like Paul is pulling out all the stops to help us understand the exaltation of Jesus. Now again, like we saw last week, verses 6 through 11, they're structured like a poem or a hymn. So part of the purpose of this passage is to lead us into adoration of Christ. And by using this special word, it seems like Paul is going to great lengths to help us understand just how exalted Jesus really is. This isn't a common occurrence. This isn't something that you see happening. This is special. This isn't a class all by itself because of the humility of Jesus, because of his selfless nature, because he came as a servant, because he made the ultimate sacrifice to redeem us back to the Father. God exalts Jesus. But the question is, if Jesus already had been God, how can God the Father highly exalt him and give him a name above every name? I mean, wouldn't he already have that name above every name? How can he be exalted higher than being God? Like, what's higher than being God? Well, verse 11 tells us that the name Jesus was given was Lord and Messiah. Now, it's true that Jesus has been God since before time began. We saw that last week. We established that. Lots and lots of scripture over and over again that tells us Jesus was not born. Jesus was not created. He has always existed from, from before time began, and he is God. But what we saw last week was that he was the Messiah when he came to earth. But Jesus had not yet fully fulfilled his mission as Lord until after his crucifixion and resurrection. So his lordship all over all the earth had not yet been brought to full actuality because sin and death still needed to be defeated. That's why Jesus came to earth. So in defeating sin, in defeating death, Jesus then becomes victorious. He becomes a victorious lord over all his enemies. He is executing his, uh, his position as lord. The Greek word for Lord in verse uh, number 11 is kyrios. It means supreme in authority. Uh, writer and pastor Kent Hughes has a, a helpful uh, thought that's going to help us unpack this. He says, in the Greek Old Testament, that was the Septuagint, that would have been the Bible everybody used when Jesus was on earth. In the Greek Old Testament, kyrios was used to represent Yahweh, the personal name of God. So when you would read the Old Testament, it would refer to Yahweh. In Greek, it would be kyrios. Now, again, this does not mean Jesus increased in power and authority. Nothing could be higher than sharing equality with God. This must be understood as referring to a position of recognizable superiority over all creation. And that Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand makes his superiority more fully evident to the creation over which he rules. So when our passage says that God exalted Jesus... It's not about Jesus becoming God. It's not about Jesus earning deity. It's about his coronation as king. It's about him fulfilling the position of Lord and ruler over all the earth. He has exercised his authority and power as Lord in defeating sin and defeating death on the cross and in his resurrection. And he has won for himself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. This is also what the Bible means when it says Jesus is the begotten son of God. Begotten or being given a name above every name, does not refer to the creation of Jesus. It does not refer to Jesus now earning his deity. We saw that last week. That has existed from before eternity even began. It's about his resurrection. It's about his defeat of sin. And in doing so, in defeating sin, in defeating death, he is exercising lordship. When he conquered sin in the grave, he proved, finally, he is Lord of all. And we see this throughout Scripture in Acts chapter 13, verses 32 through 33. 
the Bible says, and we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made by our ancestors. That promise that they're talking about there is that a Messiah would ultimately come. And he says, we proclaim to you this good news. God has fulfilled this for us. He fulfilled that prophecy. He fulfilled that good news for us, their children, by what? By raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. The ESV or the King James there will say, you are my begotten son. And so what we see is when Jesus rose from the grave, he fulfilled that prophecy in Psalm 2. The Bible says in Romans 1, verses 2 through 4, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by what? By the resurrection of the dead. Jesus fulfills the promise, and the moment of that fulfillment was his resurrection and ascension. So when we see phrases like the begotten Son of God, or he became the Son of God, we're not saying Jesus was created. We're not saying Jesus had a beginning. We're saying Jesus is exercising his lordship. He is defeating sin and death, and he is now crowned king. It's the moment of enthronement. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and because he is at the right hand of the Father, he reigns in powers. So in essence, God tells Jesus, everything is yours. Everything that exists is now under your rule. The Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would come and sit at the right hand of God and rule. Psalm 110, verse 1. This is the declaration of the Lord, God the Father, to my Lord, God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So when Christ ascended back into heaven, he received the fulfillment of that prophecy. Hebrews tells us this in uh, chapter 1, verse 3. We looked at this verse last week. We looked at the first half of the verse last week, talking about how the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful world. And get the last half of the verse. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So when Jesus ascended back into heaven and he sits down at the right hand of the Father, he is assuming that position of power and authority. Again, Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. He, God, exercised this power in Christ by what? Raising him from the dead and seating him at, the right hand, at his right hand in the heavens. So Christ's resurrection from the dead, his ascension, now seated at the right hand of the Father. It goes on to say, he is seated at the right hand far above every ruler and authority, power, and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So at the moment of his ascension, when he sits down at the right hand of the Father, God the Father now puts under Jesus everything. Everything is now under his rule. And he has a name, he has a title, Lord, that is above every title and every power and every authority given. We see this in Revelation chapter 5. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also the living creatures and of the elders. Their, numbers was count, their number was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them, blessing and honor and glory and power to the one seated on the throne, which is a lamb forever and ever. 
Christ ascending into heaven and sitting down at the right hand of the Father is an indication of, his, of the completion of his work. And so when we see his exaltation here in Philippians 2, this is the moment of his enthronement. And now because he is enthroned, he has the authority as ruler over all that God the Father has given him. He exercises and executes the will of God the Father. Now what we don't want is for this to become a purely academic truth and we miss the explosive nature of what verse 9 is telling us. I mean, the resurrection of Jesus, I don't know how else to put it, it was an explosive moment. The Bible says in Matthew 28, there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. I mean, the man knew how to make an exit. Literally, an angel touches down, and when that angel touches down, there is a violent earthquake. This is the pivotal moment of history. And so as we consider the exaltation of Jesus' position, our hearts should be driven into worship. Our hearts should be driven into adoration. Our hearts should be driven into amazement and wonder that the humble servant we saw last week ascends into heaven, and he is now the powerful ruler over all that is. We cannot allow ourselves to get so used to hearing Jesus is Lord that we miss the significance of that reality. This truth moves us into adoration, yes. But as we saw, the main purpose of our passage is it moves us into emulating. The call for us is to adopt this same attitude, to let this mind be in you, that Jesus is highly exalted above all and that he is Lord. I mean, this changes everything in our lives. This drives our worship. This drives our obedience. This drives our confidence. I've said it over and over and over again, and I'm going to keep on saying it. Christians should be the most humble, yet confident, level-headed people that there are. Because we serve the King of Kings. We serve the Lord. The one who we sing to. The one whom we worship. He is executing the will of the Father. He is Lord over all the earth. And our relationship with Jesus isn't just servant-master, although it is. He is our master. We are the servants. He says jump, we say how high. But scripture also tells us that our relationship with Jesus is also brother. It's friend. We can boldly go into his presence because of his completed work. Again, leaning on Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. The Bible says, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them, that's us believers, brothers and sisters. Let this sink in, church. Jesus is your big brother in heaven. And your big brother in heaven is the supreme ruler over all the earth. Everything. Executing the will of the Father over everything. I mean, let that sink into your heart. Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother. I'm not ashamed to call you my sister. You can come boldly to me. I will never turn you away. And that one who we can always go to is Lord over all. That's why we as Christians should be the most humble yet confident level-headed people. I mean, even when we don't understand why things happen in our lives, even though we can't fully understand why things go the way they do in our society, we can live with confidence that Jesus is Lord. He is exalted above everything. 
We don't have to understand everything. We aren't the ones who are exalted. Jesus was. So as we adopt the same attitude, that Christ is highly exalted, that Christ has a name above every name, we'll live obediently with trust and confidence and hearts full of wonder. Verse 9 shows us the exaltation of his position. But now let's look at verses 10 and 11. Verse number 10 says, So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So verse 9 shows us the exaltation of his position, but then verses uh, 10 and 11 show us the reasons for his exaltation. And one of those reasons is the confession of all people. The confession of all people. One of the reasons that God exalted Jesus is so that everyone will acknowledge his lordship. Whether willingly or not, there will be a moment in time when everyone confesses Jesus is Lord. Now in verse 10 says in heaven, this is the saints who have already gone on to heaven. These are the angels. These are all the heavenly beings. And you read Revelation and you're like, I don't even know what some of these things are. Everything in heaven will one day, and they are confessing that Jesus is Lord to their eternal praise and delight. It says on the earth. This is every person who walks this earth, whether redeemed or rebel, they will one day bow the knee before Jesus and confess that he is Lord. And this is under the earth. These are those souls who are already under judgment. These are already those who are imprisoned and the demons who are in hell. They will one day bow before the Lord Jesus. And the Bible tells us it will be to their eternal shame. No knee is excluded. No tongue is exempt. Everyone will bow and confess. And as Paul writes this in verses 10 and 11, he's, he's echoing Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 is referring to God the Father, but Paul applies it here to Jesus, because remember, Jesus is God. And so Isaiah 45, verses 22 through 24, God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, truth has gone out from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me, every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said about me, righteousness and strength are only found in the Lord. Verse 24 says, all who are enraged against him will come to him and be put to shame. That's a sobering reality. To some degree, this, is, this reality is what drives our evangelism. This drives why we do missions. And the cry of God in Isaiah still rings out today. Turn to Jesus and be saved. He is God and there is no other. Bow the knee before Jesus before it's too late. If you don't place your faith and trust in Jesus in this life, it will be too late after death. And in the final judgment, every unconverted soul will confess that Jesus is Lord to their eternal shame, according to Isaiah. Now, on the one hand, I want to be careful. If you've never confessed that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, I don't want to pressure you into doing something that's not real. This is not one, two, three, repeat after me, okay, now you got your golden ticket. But I also can't ignore the reality of what God says. I mean, how unloving would a person have to be to not tell you this if they really believed it? The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness 
of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. Paul's saying God ain't hiding. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen through the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, all people are without excuse. Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 1, God's not hiding from anyone. And because of that, no person who has ever walked this earth is without excuse for not turning to God. But check out the promise in John 6, John 6, 37. Everyone the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. So if you're seeking God, God will make sure that you get the answers you have. Those that come to him do not get cast out. So on the one hand, we have this sobering reality, the judgment of sin. God loves his creation too much to not pour out wrath on the very thing that is wreaking havoc on his creation. God says, I love you too much to allow sin to continue to run rampant and to not execute justice. For God not to pour out his wrath on sin and execute justice would be the most unloving thing we could ever imagine. But God says, I love you too much, so I will pour out wrath on sin. But on the other hand, we've been given an invitation after invitation after invitation to turn to Christ and be saved from that judgment. God's deepest desire is that you would turn away from your sin and confess Jesus. Romans chapter number 10. This is a message of faith that we proclaim. What is that message of faith that we proclaim? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the ruler over all the earth. Jesus is the ultimate and final authority. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. If you believe Jesus is real, if you believe the resurrection is real, if you're not just looking at Jesus, oh, he was a good man, maybe he was a prophet. No, if you really believe he raised from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. Because one believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. And one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him, get this, will not be put to shame. So Isaiah warns that if you don't turn to Christ, it's going to be to your eternal shame. But if you do turn to Christ, you will never be put to shame. Paul goes on in Romans 10. He says, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord overall richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you live in. It doesn't matter if you live in the projects or you live in the nicest neighborhood in town. And this is Fresno, so, you know, the bar's kind of low. It doesn't matter where you come from. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. If you confess in this life, Jesus, you are Lord. You are sovereign. You are ruler over all that is. And you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. God promises you will be saved from your sin. And you will never be put to shame. You won't have to face the righteous and fair judgment of God for sin. Because Jesus absorbed that for you. Last week we saw how Jesus died for our sins. He took the wrath of God for us on the cross so that we could be redeemed back to the Father. If you're an unbeliever here, you can be grafted into that reality. You can be grafted into the family of God. Jesus can become your big brother. Turn to him. And if you have questions about what it means, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? 
We would love, as a church, to walk, with that, walk through that with you. We would love to help you find those answers. I mean, come see me after the service. If a friend brought you here this morning after the service, ask them, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And I know I'm putting them on the spot, but I promise you, they will love nothing more than to open up the Word of God and show you what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And if you've got questions, this isn't just, you know, something to flippantly do. If you have questions, we would love to take God's Word and show you those questions. If you say, I'm ready to believe, again, see me after the service. Ask the person that brought you here. We would love nothing more this morning than to show you, to help you respond to the call of Jesus. Eternity hangs in the balance here. Don't wait to confess in judgment. Confess now and experience redemption in the fullness of life that's promised to those who believe in Jesus. So the first purpose that we see, the first reason God exalts Jesus, is the confession of all people. And at the end of verse 11, we see the ultimate reason for the exaltation of Jesus. Last part of verse 11 says, to the glory of God the Father. Now on the one hand, this further drives home what we saw last week, the humility of Jesus, by showing us God the Father is the one who receives all the glory from the exaltation of Jesus. Even in his exaltation, Jesus is about God's glory. Now this doesn't make God glorious. The exaltation of Jesus does not make God glorious. It reveals God is glorious. It demonstrates how great and how beautiful and how wonderful and how amazing and how worthy God is. This shows us that every tongue confessing Jesus is Lord displays all the perfection. It displays everything that makes God God. That's what it means to the glory of God the Father. Now in our introduction, we saw how God is the one who is instigating the action in verses 9, 10, and 11. And so ultimately, God is doing all of this for his own glory. Now, it's true, we are the benefactors of redemption. <laughs> what amazing benefits those are. What an amazing promise that we've given. But ultimately, our redemption is not even about us. It's about the glory of God. This is God pursuing his own glory. Now, again, that raises a question. How can God pursue his own glory and not be a proud egomaniac? The answer is simple. There's nothing greater than God. <laughs> If God were to pursue the glory of something else other than him, that would mean there's something greater than him. And that would mean he is not worthy of our worship, and that would mean we're all wasting our time. <laughs> but there is nothing greater than him. So God has to pursue his own glory because there's nothing greater. If God did not pursue his own glory, we would have no hope. We would have no salvation. <laughs> we would have nothing. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul demonstrates this by saying that he considers everything a loss compared to the surpassing beauty of Christ. If Paul says that about God the Son, how much more God the Father? There is literally nothing better than knowing Him. And Paul says, I count everything else as dung compared to the surpassing beauty of Him. This reality is what enables our faithfulness when life is difficult. Oh, I can be faithful to God even when my life is difficult because there's nothing better than Him. This reality is what enables us to share the gospel when we are timid and afraid. Because there's nothing better than knowing him. I think that's worth stepping outside my comfort zone for. This reality is what drives us outside of our comfort zone so that others may know the beauty of his name. This reality is what drives us to be generous because God is glorious and he is so worth it. This reality is what drives our holy living when temptation seems so strong because the glory of Jesus is so much better than sin and it's so much better than any earthly pleasure. 
the world could promise. The glory of God is better than anything. It's better than an easy life. It's better than any sin. It's better than staying inside my comfort zone. It's better than the praise or the promises or the success that the world will offer you. The glory of God is better than anything. And so when God pursues his own glory, he is preserving for us what is ultimately satisfying and what is ultimately life-giving. I mean, Psalm 1611, David said, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Because God is love, he has to pursue his glory. And it's in that pursuit of his glory that we experience life. Because God pursues his own glory, we get to experience that abundant joy. We get to experience those eternal pleasures. And as we adopt this same attitude, the pursuit of God's glory above all else, we are setting our life up for what ultimately satisfies our eternal soul. So is it weird that God pursues his own glory? No. That's our hope. (laughs) That's our life. Seeking the glory of God is not in conflict with our pursuit of joy. The glory of God is the destination of our pursuit of joy. Paul says everything is nothing. I can count it all lost because there's nothing better. Now to experience this, it takes a shift in mindset. To be able to say with Paul, I count all things but loss. Can you honestly say that? Can I honestly say that? That takes a shift in mind. That takes a renewing of mind. I can obey and lose in this life because God is better. That takes a shift in mindset to really believe that to the core of who you are. It takes a renewed mind. But friends, that's the point of this passage. Adopt this same mindset. Let this mind be in you. It means take out the mindset that says, I'd rather have earthly pleasure or comfort or success or whatever. You fill in the blank. It takes a heavenly mindset to say the glory of God is better than that. It takes a heavenly eternal mindset to say Jesus is better. And I will gladly follow him to the ends of the earth, even if that means I lose everything because his glory is so much better than anything I would ever lose. The glory of God is better than anything, and it's worth sacrificing everything for. That takes a mind shift, a mindset shift. Got to be careful there. <laughs> Almost cussing on stage. That's not good. Um, but that's the point of the passage. Adopt this same mindset. The humility and exaltation of Jesus are ultimately about demonstrating the glory of God. So, friend, if you're here today and there's never been that moment, I would ask you, has there been a moment when you have confessed that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart God raised him from the dead? Believe that he really is God. That's why he could raise from the dead. Believe the claims he makes throughout Scripture. And if you're here this morning and you're like, man, I don't even know about those claims in Scripture, again, let us walk through that with you. There's foundational truths to even get to that place where you believe God's word is God's word. We would love to help you understand that. But has there been a moment when you confess Jesus is Lord and believe God raised him from the dead? If you haven't, let me implore you to consider the call of Christ. Consider the call of God. Turn to me and be saved. Don't shelf this decision. 
This isn't something you can just kick down the road and like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll get around to it. This is something you really need to consider. This is something you need to wrestle with. This is something you need to, is this real or is it not? Because eternity hangs in the balance. Let me implore you, answer the call of God, turn to me and be saved. Adopt the same attitude. For those of us who have professed faith, we have confessed that Jesus is Lord. We are believers. We are children of God. Adopt this same attitude. Jesus is Lord. And as we do, we will live so that others can confess and adore Jesus as Lord. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would adopt that attitude. Lord, I pray that your spirit would reveal in our hearts areas where we don't have that attitude and where we haven't surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts to believe what God's word says when it, your glory is better than anything. Lord, I pray that we as believers would believe that down to the very core and fiber of who we are to the point it affects everything in our life. And Lord, I pray for those that might be here with us or watching online who don't know you, who haven't confessed that you are Lord. I pray that they would answer the call, turn to you, and be saved.